Shut up and sit down. Welcome. Welcome back to In the Context of Empire. My name is John Lancaster, and as always, I'm joined here with my co-host, Matt McKenna. Matt, how you doing over there? I'm great. Uh, thrilled to be speaking to another expert guest, and this time about a topic we really haven't touched much on this show, even though it's, you could say, globally important and uh, affects us all in, in very grave ways. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, John, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest today? Yeah, agreed there, Matt. And today we are very excited to have on the podcast, Dr. Martin J. Sherwin. He's a professor of history at George Mason University. He's the co-author of the Pulitzer Prize winning book, American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. He's also the author of A World Destroyed, Hiroshima and Its Legacies, and his latest book, Gambling with Armageddon, Nuclear Roulette from Hiroshima in, uh, to the Cuban Missile Crisis. We wanna welcome on the podcast, uh, Dr. Martin Sherwin. Thank you so much, Marty, for joining us. Well, to be here, Jonathan and Matt, uh, thank you for having me. So, Marty, with any guest we have on, we, we are always interested in what brought them to the work that they do. And so we, we wanted to kind of start our discussion with what kind of factors and background led you to this interest in the use of nuclear weapons? Well, I was brought up during uh, the Cold War. I was in high school in the 1950s, college in the 1950s. Uh, when I was a young kid, I was uh, duck and covering on the desks. Uh, you couldn't live through that era without being aware that uh, uh, nuclear war was a real possibility. So um, uh, it's not surprising that I got interested in it, in the subject. Uh, what's surprising is that everybody my age didn't get involved <laughs> in writing books about <laughs> the nuclear issue. So a logical place to start this conversation is to start at the beginning of the nuclear age, which I think most people would agree is the Manhattan Project and the subsequent use of the, nu of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I think at a starting point, we, we just need to go over some of the commonly held assumptions that I think a lot of your work does a good job showing are kind of flawed. And you know, without spending 20 minutes just talking about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, because we have so much more ground to cover, we do want to address some of these assumptions that you know that people use to justify the use of those weapons, and uh, you know I'll, I'll throw a few of them out, a couple of them out there, and you you, I, you can just uh, respond to them as you see fit. But you know one of the things we hear is that the use of the bomb, uh, those two atomic bombs, not just the one, was crucial to saving both uh, Japanese and American lives, and and this. This myth has only, or well, maybe you'll tell us it's not a myth, this assumption has only grown more prevalent in the 75 years since the bombs were dropped. And I, I was wondering if you could address that assumption uh, with some of your own, what, what you've discovered in your own research. Okay, thank you for that question. It is the, uh, uh, the, the first and fundamental question when you talk about uh, anything in the nuclear age, because everything follows from... Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, but let me frame it a little um, uh, differently. Uh, so this latest book that I wrote, Gambling with Armageddon, uh, and I'm going to hold it up here, get a little advertising in. <laughs> Gambling with Armageddon, 
nuclear roulette from Hiroshima to uh, the Cuban uh, Missile Crisis. Um, you know, most of, well, I guess all of the uh, books about uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, uh, either begin with the 13 days uh, uh, or with the Cuban Revolution and so forth. Uh, what's unique about my book, or one of the things that's unique about my book, is that I go back to Hiroshima and point out that uh, in some sense, the crisis was the logical outcome of the way nuclear weapons were used from Hiroshima onward. Uh, so um, uh, there is a uh, actually a couple of uh, uh, chapters at the beginning on uh, how Truman used the bomb, why Hiroshima was bombed, Nagasaki, etc. So without going into the huge historiography and all the uh, details about uh, uh, was the bomb necessary, why was it used, uh, the first thing to say is that the bomb was there, the war was there, and in the spring of 1945 and summer of 1945, uh, the United States knew it was going to win the war, and the focus was on the post-war period. And James Burns, who was uh, the Secretary of State and Truman's primary advisor, uh, said very clearly, it was my belief that it was important to get the war over with before the Russians came in. Um, so if you're going to focus on that and you understand that Truman and Burns were thinking about the Russians, the critical question is, what would the effect of the Russians coming in have on the end of the war? And the absolute incontrovertible answer, if you face the evidence clearly, is that once the Russians came in, the Japanese were going to surrender. Why? The Japanese were more anti-communist than the United States. The idea that the Soviet Union would participate in the occupation and the Japanese understood that the Soviets, if they did participate in the occupation, would occupy northern Japan, would take Hokkaido, would tear Japan asunder, so to speak as Korea was torn uh, asunder. Uh, and once the Soviet Union declared war on Japan, which was on August 8th, uh, the war was over. So what was the effect of the atomic bomb on bringing the war to an end? Um, it had one effect. It moved the Soviet declaration of war against Japan 
up about three or four days. The Soviets were committed to enter the war about August um, 10th, 12th, 14th, uh, so, something in there. Uh, and they were entering it for their own reasons. Uh, they wanted uh, to take Hokkaido. They wanted uh, to occupy uh, part of Japan. Uh, so once the Soviets entered, the choices that the Japanese had changed remarkably. Suddenly, surrendering to the United States was the best option, not the worst option. So the answer is that uh, the atomic bombs were not necessary to bring about Japan's surrender in August of 1945. There's a lot of other things to talk about. Uh, it's very complicated. Uh, there are counter arguments to that. But this is ultimately uh, what I think the evidence shows. And it is also the beginning of the nuclear age with weapons introduced as uh, both instruments of war and instruments of diplomacy. Uh, and that is the foundation for leading us from Hiroshima to the Cuban Missile Crisis and to today. Right. I think what you're saying on its surface just makes a lot of sense, though. It doesn't really follow, at least in my mind, that Japan would suddenly have surrendered after the two atomic bombs had been dropped. They had been dealing with these firebombing campaigns uh, really since much earlier that year. And these, you know, somewhere upwards of 800,000 people had been killed. So 60-something Japanese cities had been totally destroyed. So it doesn't really make sense to me that suddenly the bombs would be the the two atomic bombs would be the factors that destroyed that dis destroyed their will to fight. But John, I'll I'll pass to you. I know you have a, a question to follow up with. Yeah, I'm I'm just wondering, given you know, given that answer, um, whether or you know, what was kind of the discussion like in Truman's inner circle there within the Truman administration, maybe within the State Department? Was there was the dissent there? Did people advise not to drop? The bomb, or their generals who advise not to drop the bomb. Um, what was the dissent within that decision, if there was any? Well, um, the major dissent came from uh, the scientists at the University of Chicago, Leo Zillard in particular, who sent a petition around. And there was something called the Frank Report uh, that argued that the bomb should not be dropped uh, for several reasons and the frank report was thinking for towards the post-war period said if we think we can cooperate with the soviets after the war uh using the bomb will uh frighten them and will uh, uh make cooperation with the soviets much more difficult if we think we cannot get along with the soviets after the war using the bomb will simply promote their effort to get a bomb as quickly as possible. Uh, and the foundation of that argument was that uh, it was not necessary to use the bomb to end, end the war. But within the administration itself, uh, there was uh, no serious uh, uh, 
uh, resistance. I mean, there were several people like John McCloy who said it was important to um, um, clarify the emperor's status uh, in unconditional surrender in order to bring about uh, the Japanese, uh, you know, to surrender. There was uh, Ralph Bard, who was the um, uh, uh, undersecretary of the Navy, I believe, who argued that uh, using the bomb against Japan without warning them uh, uh, clearly, uh, which we did not do, uh, uh, that we, they would be bombed was, uh, was in effect un-American. Uh, you know, we, we simply shouldn't do that. Uh, but basically, um, uh, the bomb was there, the war was there, uh, the Soviets were there, and uh, Stimson said at the Potsdam Conference, Henry Stimson was the Secretary of War who was um, uh, in charge of the Manhattan Project, the project to build a bomb. Uh, now we have the great equalizer. He said that after the uh, uh, successful test of the first atomic uh, device on July 16th, 1945, which was uh, uh, happened at the beginning of the Potsdam Conference. Yes, yeah, so you're clearly articulating that you know they there was some dissent, uh, maybe not necessarily in Truman's immediate circle, but certainly amongst the scientists and other people who were working in the government. But I think what's really interesting is. A lot of the, uh, there was a significant dissent among the highest ranking members of the military. Can you can you talk about a couple of the, or as many as you'd like? But I think that's really important for people to understand. This just this wasn't a bunch of peace activists to, who dissented about using the atomic bomb. We're talking about some of the most famous names of World War II. Yes, uh, you know, uh, I think five or six of the uh, most senior generals and admirals in. Um, uh, in World War II, uh, thought the atomic bomb was a very bad idea. But unfortunately, they were not in on the discussion of whether or not it should be used. Eisenhower, for example, at Potsdam, says that he told uh, Truman and Stimson that uh, we shouldn't use that awful thing against the Japanese. We didn't need to. Uh, you know, the war was won. Uh, Admiral Leahy was against it. Uh, uh, even uh, uh, Halsey was against it. Um, uh, there's a long list of uh, uh, people who thought it was uh, the wrong thing to have done. Yeah, and, and you know, we do want to kind of take a look at this in terms of, you know, even zooming out a little bit more towards, or I guess moving forward in the timeline a bit more to like the Cold War after the bombing. Um, and, you know, I think, of course, after Hiroshima, you have a development, a new, you know, people would classify the Cold War as a nuclear arms race. And we first wanted to, you know, ask you if you would think, does that actually describe the situation, a nuclear arms race? Um, and I also want to see, do you believe that there was any chance, you know, from the Truman administration through the Eisenhower administration, was there ever like an off-ramp where, um, you know, there would be or could have been an eradication of nuclear weapons? Um, 
Well, there, yes, there, there, there was an off-ramp. Whether it would have um, uh, worked or not, uh, nobody knows for sure. But, um, uh, in fact, let me back up to during the war. Uh, when Niels Bohr escaped from Denmark and came to the United States, uh, he met with Roosevelt and made the case that the Soviet Union should be brought into the Manhattan Project, should be clearly informed about it, uh, uh, in order to prevent what happened, which was a, a nuclear a nuclear arms race. Uh, so, um, you know that that idea was certainly on the table. Um, uh, that idea grew into, uh, became the something called the atchison Lilienthal Report after the war, which was really the Oppenheimer Report. Uh, uh, Oppenheimer um, uh, working with a committee that the Truman administration was pressured into setting up uh, by something called the scientist movement and public opinion uh, to try to uh, uh, develop a plan for the international control of atomic energy, uh, which meant neutralizing nuclear weapons, uh, preventing uh, any accumulation of uh, nuclear nuclear weapons. So the Atchison Lilienthal report uh, was provided to uh, the Truman administration when it was finished, uh, and it was turned over to uh, Bernard Baruch, uh, who presented it as the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations Atomic Energy Commission uh, in June of 1946. Now, the Baruch plan differed markedly from the atchison Lilienthal report. And the Baruch plan was essentially uh, a plan for the international control of atomic energy uh, while the United States maintained the monopoly of nuclear weapons until it was satisfied uh, that uh, the world was organized the way we wanted it uh, organized and that the Soviets were not um, uh, uh, doing things independently that we did not did not like. So um, that was an opportunity uh, which we blew basically by turning this thing over to Baruch and letting him uh, change it, change the plan. Whether or not the Soviets would have accepted it after Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, is questionable. My own view is it's very unlikely because um, uh, if you read a wonderful book uh, by David Holloway called Stalin and the Bomb, uh, it uh, makes it very clear in one of the chapters that Stalin's reaction to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and I talk about that in Gambling with Armageddon. There's a whole chapter on it. Uh, his reaction to Hiroshima and Nagasaki was, they are warning me that I'm next if I don't behave the way they want me to. Um, Stalin believed that the Japanese were defeated, that nuclear weapons bombing them with the nuclear weapons was not necessary and he believed that they were used in order to try to end the war before he came in 
which was absolutely accurate, as James Burns himself said. Uh, and um, uh, so Hiroshima really, I Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Nagasaki was kind of the, uh, you know, the... I don't know what you would call it, the icing on the cake, the uh, the extra, uh, you know, Sunday punch or whatever. Um, uh, Stalin, you know, he was appalled. That, you know, he, he said to one of his uh, advisors, they're killing Japanese and they're threatening us. Uh, you know, that was, you know, the view. So uh, uh, the off-ramps, I think were there, but uh, I think they were blocked. Right, and that that was such a thorough breakdown of what some of the other options could have been. And John and I are both history teachers, and we we like to stress the important of importance of language because using certain language often obfuscates the truth. Right, so we. We might we can call it a nuclear arms race, but that we should acknowledge that this race was certainly the people made choices. Nothing was inevitable about this. Uh, it and it just just qualified as a nuclear arms race, as if these were equal parties competing. Obfuscates the fact that the United States developed the bombs first and had several opportunities to not pursue the path that was pursued. But what we want. So speaking of agency, right? So you've written quite a bit about because you. A few minutes ago, you just mentioned that Eisenhower was among the generals who uh, did not support the use of this weapon, and yet Eisenhower is president a few years later. And you know, can we talk about how the U.S. policy regarding nuclear weapons, uh, the stockpile itself, uh, where weapons were deployed, uh, changed during the Eisenhower administration? Because it, it, from what I've uh, heard you talk about it and what I've read of your uh, of your work, it sounds like you hold Eisenhower you give him a lot of responsibility for the escalation of this nuclear arms race. Um, I certainly do. And uh, as I researched uh, gambling with Armageddon, uh, I and, and, and dug into the Eisenhower um, uh, uh, nuclear weapons policies more than I had before I decided to write this book. Uh, I was actually appalled. But let me go back. I mean, I'm really glad to hear your history teachers. And uh, I, I want to propose something that, that, you know, you might raise in your classes. Uh, what if all of history up until August 5th, 1945, was the same, you know, as it was? But on August 6th, we did not use the atomic bomb. And uh, the Russians came into, the Soviets came into the war on August 8th, 10th, 12th, whatever. Uh, and the war ended pretty much uh, at the same time that it did, maybe a week later, I'm not sure. Uh, so uh, what would have happened after the war? if the United States refused to use the bomb? Well, it would have been a congressional hearing. Uh, Stimson would have been called, uh, among all the other uh, responsible people uh, uh, administration. And what Stimson would have said is what he told 
the uh, President Truman on April 25th, 1945, in a very important memorandum. He would have said, we are, we developed the bomb that could destroy civilization. The United States uh, is responsible for what happens to the world with respect to this nuclear weapon. We are not the Germans. We are not the Japanese. We have our own values. We didn't need the bomb to end the war. And this weapon should never be used. It should be, in effect, buried, put back in the box. Um, and uh, uh, it is not a weapon that any civilized society would use. Uh, and uh, we did not use it. What do you think, and you can ask your class this, and uh, what do you think, class, uh, would have happened if nuclear weapons were introduced to the world as an unacceptable, unusable, uncivilized, you know, weapon, a weapon so horrible that all the nations of the world should create a condominium to prevent uh, any uh, accumulation of this of this weapon. Do you think history would be different? Uh, I think it's the critical question. Remember, we, by bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki during the war, what we did was introduce nuclear weapons to the world as legitimate weapons of war that were usable. If we had introduced them in exactly the opposite way as illegitimate weapons that are not usable by any reasonable uh, government, uh, what the, would the difference have been? Your guess is as good as mine, but your guess is important. Think about it. Okay. Right. We do want to get your take on Eisenhower, but uh, you know, I'll just th throw a, a quick uh, aside in there. It's like I think part of the my own opinion is that part of the reason people are are generally okay with, well, not everyone, but a, a very large portion of people are okay, Americans especially, with the you know the historical use of the bomb and really bombing in general. It's, I think bombing is kind of antiseptic. You know, it it's it's impersonal, whereas. If I were to say, well, instead of the bomb, what if would you be okay with uh, U.S. soldiers entering Hiroshima and executing every man, woman, and child and putting them in a mass grave with a gunshot to the back of their head? I think more people would be uh, horrified by that possibility. But you know, what's the difference between killing someone from up close or, or dropping a bomb on them if the if the sum total of the destruction is the same? So I'll pass back to you, uh, Dr. Sherwin, and you can feel, take it any direction. We do want to hear your take on Eisenhower, especially though. Uh, so, you know, I mean, what you talked about was the rape of Nanking, what the Japanese did to the Chinese, you know, would we, you know, find that acceptable? Anyway, so during the Truman administration, uh, nuclear weapons, A, were used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, B, the, um, uh, the effort for the international control of atomic energy was constructed in a way that ended up be uh, assuring that the Soviet Union would not uh, accept it. Uh, see, uh, when the Soviet Union exploded its uh, first nuclear weapon in 1949, uh, the um, uh, 
uh, scientists like Edward Teller, Ernest Lawrence, and others uh, promoted the idea of going for the hydrogen bomb. Uh, Oppenheimer was opposed to that. Um, uh, Truman uh, eventually said, uh, look, if it's possible to make it, we're going to make it. Uh, so, uh, you know, Truman uh, accumulated nuclear weapons, but he accumulated, a, you know, a stockpile of about 1952, about 1,200 nuclear weapons. And Truman absolutely maintained that the president had total control of these nuclear weapons. And one has to say that the Truman administration's use of nuclear weapons was as a backstop. Uh, Eisenhower comes into office in 1953, and he reverses that. Nuclear weapons are not a backstop. Nuclear weapons are the forefront of American foreign policy. He develops uh, the idea of massive retaliation, uh, brinksmanship, and it's Eisenhower who does it, not John Foster Dulles, as many people at the time thought, because Dulles was the great spokesman for this. And eight years later, when Eisenhower leaves office, the 1,200 nuclear weapons that were in the arsenal when he took office have become 22,000 nuclear weapons. Uh, Eisenhower just accumulated these things. He, you know, put all his chips on the Strategic Air Command. Uh, brinksmanship was, you know, the policy. And when Khrushchev uh, came into office. Remember, Stalin dies in March 1953, uh, just a couple of months after Eisenhower becomes president. Uh, uh, Khrushchev, by 1956, says, you know, uh, I, I'm being, you know, threatened constantly with American nuclear weapons and John Foster Dulles and his brinksmanship. I'm going to do the same thing. And he developed something he calls, uh, you know, he, he has a brinksmanship uh, uh, theory also. And he threatens France and Britain when they invade with a nuclear attack, when they invade um, uh, uh, Egypt uh, during the Suez crisis of 56. Um, uh, what has happened is that American nuclear policy has become the blueprint for Soviet nuclear policy. And the Soviets are constantly trying to catch up. And that is part of the story of the Cuban uh, missile, missile crisis and why it began. Uh, in many ways, you could argue that uh, Eisenhower was just as responsible for the Cuban Missile Crisis as uh, Khrushchev and Kennedy. Uh, it was Eisenhower who developed the, uh, the plan uh, that became the Bay of Pigs invasion. Uh, the CIA trained anti-Castro uh, Cubans. Uh, when that failed, um, Khrushchev and Castro were absolutely convinced that um, uh, the United States was going to invade Cuba with American 
troops. Uh, and uh, Khrushchev decided he had to do something to uh, protect his new best friend. Yeah, John, I'm going to pass to you, but I, I just think it's so ironic that, you know, two things with Eisenhower. One, we already mentioned that he was against the original use of the bombs. And then the fact that he's the guy who gave us the famous military industrial complex speech warning us. And yet he's the guy he's, you know, I think you would argue the most responsible for this use of basically nuclear weapons being the forefront of U.S. foreign policy. So that is very strange. But, John, uh, I'll pass to you. I know you got another question. Yeah, and I'm um, thank you for for that answer and, and tracing you know Eisenhower's responsibility in all of this, and you know ending up kind of where we want to to ask the next, the next question, which is about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And at the tail end of that answer, you you mentioned that you know um, Eisenhower is as responsible for the crisis than you know someone like JFK. And you know it's it's interesting because you know Kennedy gets a ton of credit in a lot of ways by a lot of Americans for an avoiding nuclear war during the Cuban Missile Crisis. But he's also fairly responsible for bringing us to the brink that was the Cuban Missile Crisis. So could you talk a little bit about Kennedy's actions? You know, we've talked about Eisenhower, what he's done to, to kind of situate this event. But what actions did JFK do to, to bring about the crisis? Well, when, JF, when uh, Kennedy comes into office, he... Um, uh, he's very critical of the Eisen of Eisenhower's uh, brinksmanship and massive retaliation policies. I mean, what those policies in effect said was that if the Soviets cross line, uh, uh, we're going to respond with nuclear weapons. Uh, and and Kennedy says, you know, this this makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, we have a choice between allowing them to gobble up. Uh, territory or uh, starting a nuclear war. We got to have some kind of um, uh, sensible um, uh, middle middle ground. Uh, so Kennedy builds up uh, conventional forces, but he also uh, builds up uh, the uh, the nuclear forces. He doubles the size of the submarine force. Um, he um, uh, uh, he does uh, a lot of things that really uh, uh, frighten Khrushchev, make him angry. Uh, uh, Khrushchev initially is hoping that he's going to be able to work with Kennedy uh, in a much uh, more cooperative way than Eisenhower. And Kennedy really does want to work with Khrushchev, and he's very concerned that nuclear weapons have spun out of uh, control, and they are controlling the foreign policy of the United States and the Soviet Union rather than the other way around. Uh, but he is uh, a politician who uh, recognizes that by the end of by the early 1960s, um, when he becomes president, uh, the United States has been brainwashed into believing that we need more and more nuclear weapons and that these things keep us safe and that um, uh, any politician who, uh, you know, opposes nuclear weapons or uh, is skeptical about them, like Adlai Stevenson, uh, gets beaten. In 1952, Stevenson ran as Democratic uh, uh, presidential candidate against Eisenhower. In 56, he 
did the same thing. Uh, Stevenson was a nuclear skeptic, and he made no bones about it. Uh, and uh, the results of the election were not something that Kennedy, you know, wanted. So, um, uh, you know, we have this situation where Kennedy contributes to uh, the environment that leads uh, Khrushchev to decide to put nuclear weapons, uh, sneak nuclear weapons into Cuba. Uh, now, there's something that has to be, we have to go back to the Eisenhower administration. Uh, after Sputnik was launched in October 1957, Eisenhower decided to send intermediate and um, uh, medium range uh, ballistic missiles uh, to, uh, uh, to Europe. And he put Jupiter missiles uh, in Turkey, 130 miles from Soviet territory. Uh, those missiles really bothered Khrushchev, but they also gave him the idea, if Eisenhower can do that to me, I'm going to do that to him by sneaking these things into Cuba and then make an announcement that, uh, you know, these missiles are there. Eisenhower, uh, Kennedy wouldn't dare uh, attack Cuba at that point. And uh, I've not only saved Castro and communism for Cuba, but I have uh, increased the number of nuclear weapons that I can uh, hit the United States with, thereby slightly uh, evening up uh, the balance. Uh, but the United States had a much uh, larger arsenal than the Soviets had. Yeah, it's it's funny that we give JFK so much credit, uh, generally speaking, in the United States for you know, averting disaster. Which, of course, you know, we'll get into some of the stuff that he did do that was positive. But you know, it's it's almost like you get credit for create uh, for cleaning up a mess that you helped create. And then, you know, I think something that is admirable about JFK, although we, we could acknowledge he's a complicated figure, is that whereas most presidents don't do this anymore, he had the courage to stand up to the Joint, Chief, Joint Chiefs of Staff, which is seemingly a rare quality. Rarely do you see, uh, you know, last few administrations, Obama barely stood up to McChrystal or Petraeus, and Trump barely stands up to the, any of the generals these days. Uh, but something I want to, to ask you, like, uh, while we're talking about the Kennedys, uh, RFK also has so, sort of a maybe an undue reputation for being kind of the, the peacenik within within uh, JFK's circle as opposed to the, the Hawks in the Joint Chiefs. So before we move on and, and try and into the intricacies of the Cuban Missile Crisis, can you just talk uh, a little bit about what was RFK's role in the Cuban Missile Crisis and what are some of the assumptions many people hold about RFK that maybe our, the historical record doesn't bear out? Well, uh, uh, Robert Kennedy uh, wrote a book called 13 Days, which was his memoir of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, and um, when he showed the manuscript to a friend of his, uh, uh, the friend, um, after reading it, responded, Bobby, I thought your brother was president of the United States during the crisis. <laughs> uh, and uh, allegedly... Uh, Bobby's answer was, yes, but I'm running for uh, president, not him. Uh, I mean, that, that was a, um, you know, a, a campaign document. Uh, RFK paints himself as uh, the great um, 
peace, diplomatic-oriented advisor to the president. Well, um, when you look at the transcripts of the secret tape recordings of the meetings of Kennedy and his advisors, uh, the uh, advisors were uh, were called the Executive Committee of the National Security Council, the XCOM, uh, and all their meetings were secretly taped by the president. Uh, possibly Robert Kennedy knew, knew, knew about uh, those tapes, but only he and his brother knew. But nevertheless, throughout that meeting, throughout those meetings that lasted, from October 16th, the day that the president is informed that the missiles were discovered in Cuba, uh, to uh, October 28th, the morning at which uh, Kennedy received um, Khrushchev's message that he was going to take his missiles out of Cuba. Uh, We have Bobby Kennedy. saying some of the most um, uh, crazy and aggressive things. Uh, Let's sink the Maine again as an excuse for invading Cuba, for example, one famous uh, comment of his. Um, My take after going through these tapes very carefully uh, is that when Bobby was being told what to do with his brother, by his brother, uh, the president. Uh, He did it exactly the way the president wanted him to. And generally speaking, after about the third day of the crisis, uh, the president was seeking ways to find a diplomatic solution. But when the president wasn't in the meeting, Bobby Kennedy was a bit off the wall, but so was Robert McNamara, who presents himself as uh, the great uh, uh, peacenik during the uh, XCOM meetings. Well, sometimes he was. McNamara said a lot of very sensible things during the XCOM meetings. On the other hand, he said a lot of dangerous things and, uh, you know, Several times near the end of the uh, the crisis, he was ready to invade and bomb and uh, uh, do all of the things that would have led to uh, a nuclear a nuclear war. So it's all very complicated, and uh, uh, you know you 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 believe what uh, uh, you want to remember how you want to see yourself. Now, these guys didn't know they were being tape recorded. And maybe uh, Robert McNamara really believed that he was all always uh, supporting the president's diplomatic efforts. Uh, but it just was not the case. I mean, the, these tape recordings are an amazing record. We'll never have anything like that again. Uh, in the midst of the most existential crisis in world history, we have 
secret tape recordings of the exact words that these people were saying to the president and what the president was saying to his advisors. And it's fascinating to watch the president begin to change from being a hawk on the first day to being an isolated dove near the end of uh, near the end of the crisis. Now, um, uh, Kennedy uh, initiated the blockade uh, really for political reasons, uh, and, and this is something about his responsibility. Uh, during, I think it was the second meeting, uh, somebody asked, uh, what do these Soviet missiles mean in terms of the balance of power? And McNamara says, I don't think they change things at all. And Kennedy agrees and he says, doesn't matter if you're killed by a missile coming from Cuba or a missile coming from uh, the Soviet Union or a Soviet submarine. Uh, uh, but it was unacceptable. Why? Because after the Bay of Pigs, and if Khrushchev ended up successfully leaving his missiles in Cuba, uh, Kennedy would have been defeated for president in 1964. So getting those missiles out of Cuba were, you know, there, there were many reasons to, but the most personal reason for Kennedy was that his presidency was over if those missiles uh, were left in Cuba. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say Robert McNamara viewed himself as a as a voice of for peace. Just that that name, you know, Robert McNamara, who intricate in the firebombing of Japan and, of course, uh, of Vietnam later on. So that is interesting. But John, I know, I know, we're, we got about ten minutes, so let's let's move towards some lessons and and yeah, you know, the current age. Speaking of which, and, that, and uh, Marty, you talking about the voice recording reminds me of the documentary, The Fog of War, that I think Matt you might show in your class that has some of those tape recordings. Um, but yeah, we, we also want, you know, we've been talking about the, the crazy event of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the events that led up to it and kind of what went on during it. But what do you think should have been uh, the key lessons that um, really the world should be taking out of the Cuban Missile Crisis um, and the successful diplomacy that took place in the face of voices that were urging aggression? And do you think that those lessons have been learned? Uh, well, something from the Cuban Missile Crisis. But the ultimate lesson was that nuclear weapons are good for creating the crises that they were designed to prevent. Uh, and no, the world hasn't learned, learned you know, that lesson. Uh, the lesson... There, a lot of different lessons were learned according to how you interpreted it. There's one school that argues that, um, well, the great lesson of the Cuban Missile Crisis is that uh, if you have superiority in nuclear weapons, the other side's going to back down. Uh, that's a very bad lesson. Uh, I, it, it may be true. But it's all that's going to do is uh, get you in trouble down, uh, down, down the road. Uh, the other lesson of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I think Khrushchev and Kennedy did learn, 
is that the way um, nuclear weapons were dealt with during the first 17 years of the nuclear age from 1945 to 1962 was very, very dangerous. That is Eisenhower's uh, massive retaliation policies, brinksmanship, uh, that you always are putting nuclear weapons in the forefront of your threats. Um, uh, it's very easy to move from threats that you don't intend to get out of control to uh, threats that get out of control. Uh, so that was a very useful lesson. And I think the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, was the fulcrum around which uh, arms control and uh, during the Cold War turned. Uh, right after the crisis in 1963, uh, the United States and the Soviet Union signed their first serious um, nuclear weapons agreement, the uh, Partial Test Ban Treaty. Uh, and it was, you know, from there that slowly moved to uh, strategic arms limitation talks and uh, all of that start, uh, et cetera. Um, uh, the, uh, the other lesson was that there needed to be sort of rules of the game, which was part of uh, uh, what I just, uh, what I just talked about. Um, but you know, for Kennedy, uh, he said, you know, it's absolutely crazy to live in a world in which two people on opposite sides of the world can decide to end civilization. Uh, now, you know, that's a lesson that everybody sort of understands. But when you talk about lessons learned, what you generally mean is that I've learned my lesson and now I'm going to behave. Uh, I think what the world, what world leaders came to see was that, well, we've learned the lesson, but we're going to behave the same. We're, we're just going to try to be a little more careful or something. <coughs> well, that's well said. And, you know, we're, we're about to close out here. So we want to get your, you know, <laughs> prognostications for the future here as best as, as you can do. And you're as good a candidate for such a prediction as anybody. So, you know, my sense is that there's a bit of complacency on this issue. You know, we live with this potential world ending reality, yet most people barely think about it. You know, no one, hardly anyone seems to notice that Trump pulls out of the INF treaty, hasn't re renewed New START. Obama uh, agreed to modernize nuclear weapons, which is a trillion dollar program to, I guess, make our nuclear weapons more efficient. So, you know, you're the one of the best people to speak on this issue. What are your you know, hopes for the Biden administration and, and for nu nuclear weapons uh, as a whole, as a, as a global phenomenon? What what what? activism can people engage in? What, what organizations can we support? Um, and, you know, what can we do to, to end the proliferation of nuclear weapons? Well, that's, of course, been the um, question that was on the table from the very beginning of the nuclear age, how to prevent uh, proliferation, uh, how to minimize the danger and all of that. Um, if um, President Biden called me up and said, uh, let's have a, a little Zoom, <laughs> like we're having, and uh, 
give me your thoughts about what I should do. Uh, uh, I would say, well, first of all, I agree with you, Mr. President, that we need to um, uh, re restart the uh, Iran uh, nuclear weapons uh, arrangement. Uh, and I would say that uh, it was uh, important for uh, his administration to create, recreate something that Kennedy created, the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency. And the reason for that is that you need a separate bureaucracy with uh, influence and, uh, uh, and, and maybe even some power to focus on the issue of nuclear danger, uh, the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency. Uh, those are, you know, what we are looking for. Um, uh, how do we get to disarmament? How do we minimize uh, nuclear, uh, you know, the threat of nuclear weapons? Uh, you know, nuclear weapons are now are still, we have about 6,000 of them, uh, and they are still on, uh, you know, launch on warning alert. Uh, uh, this is so incredibly dangerous, and we have to get rid of those. Uh, the, uh, we have dinosaurs that we are protecting. The dinosaurs are the ICBMs that are sitting in the silos in, you know, all over uh, the, uh, uh, the western part of the United States. Uh, uh, those things are provocateurs. They're you know, it, they're, they're the things that are important to protect from the point of view of uh, uh, our, uh, you know, the follow-on to, to SAC. So uh, let's say there's a radar um, indication that there are weapons, uh, that there are missiles coming from uh, into the United States, presumably, let's say, from the Soviet Union. Uh, it could be a false alarm, but uh, the concern uh, or the, the, the plan is we have to launch on warning. That's the warning in order to protect those dinosaurs that are, you know, buried in the ground somewhere. Why protect those? Who even needs those things? We have the Soviet, the, the submarine uh, launch ballistic missiles. We have more firepower on the Polaris submarines that are deployed, uh, that are always deployed um, uh, in secure environments uh, than uh, used all in World War II. Um, so why do we have those provocative, you know, sort of weapons there that we're protecting? So I would talk about that. But I think the first step, uh, Mr. President, uh, is to figure out a way for the United States to lead an effort to find a replacement for uh, the idea that nuclear weapons sort of guarantee the security 
of North Korea, Iran, of Israel, of the United States, of you know Russia, China, you know whatever. Uh, and for that, we need an arms control and disarmament agency uh, with a lot of influence uh, to begin to uh, promote that process in in America. Yeah, that and Marty, that was so well put. And hopefully, you know, we'll see what Biden does when you know with his next administration. But really, it, it's so important to talk about, um, and that's why you know your work, especially looking at it through a historic perspective as well, is so important. But I did actually want to ask you a, a separate question, really quick, if you had the time. I saw that you made the Global Classroom Project, and I was curious as to what that looked like, and and kind of like if it had any modern application. Well, that was the most exciting thing I ever did in my life, I think. Um, In 1987, I think it was, uh, I got this idea. I was running a center for, um, it was called the Nuclear History and Humanity Center at Tufts. I got this idea, well, Gorbachev's been talking about this armament. Uh, Let's see how serious he is. And I proposed to the president of Tufts that if I drafted a letter to Gorbachev, would he sign it, uh, proposing, you know, that we link, um, let's say, my class at Tufts on uh, America in the nuclear age uh, with a class that somebody developed in Moscow, you know, Soviet Union in the nuclear age. And we had, you know, students talking to each other a couple of times during the semester. And I was assured by the one of the technical people I work with, Joe Backen at, um, at Tufts, that, well, we have these new photo phones. And so for $5,000, you know, we can have an hour or two, uh, you know, session with, with the Soviets. Uh, my heir, the president of Tufts, liked the idea. Uh, I've drafted the letter. He wrote the letter. Frank von Hippel, a very well uh, 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 connected uh, physicist at Princeton University, where I'd been before I went to Tufts, a friend of mine uh, was going back and forth to the Soviet Union, working with leading physicists and Gorbachev advisors there. And he carried the letter over to the Soviet Union, gave it to it was addressed to Gorbachev, but he gave it to uh, Yevgeny Velikov, who was the um, uh, Gorbachev's one of his chief uh, science advisors. Velikov uh, liked the idea <laughs> and I um, uh, said, yeah, let, let, let's do this. This would be good. Uh, make a, a even longer story, much longer story short. Um, uh, I, I was back and forth to Moscow, uh, made the arrangements, uh, discovered that photo phone we don't have any photo phones. We don't know anything about photo phones in the <laughs> Soviet Union. If you want to have television contact with the Soviet Union, uh, you have to do real television. Uh, you know, that we know how to do. Well, this simple idea of $5,000 for an hour or two of uh, uh connection with classrooms, uh, grew into a $60,000 per um, event wow. project, which I had a raise. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
it was <laughs> it was an, an amazing and uh, very tense experience. Uh, anyway, um, uh, it worked. I, I'm told they're on YouTube. I've never seen. Oh wow! Uh, okay. So you can see some of them. Um, there were. Uh, what I would suggest, if you do find them on YouTube, if the fifth program it's, uh, is available, it's called The Culture of uh, the Nuclear Arms Race or The Culture of the Nuclear Age or something like that. The way these programs worked is there was a panel. I was the moderator on the American side and Velikov was the moderator on the Soviet side. And we'd have various experts. And um, uh, during the, we had one on the Cuban Missile Crisis that unfortunately the sound was uh, was very bad. But um, George Bundy was on it and, you know, some others. Um, but this fifth program is amazing. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut was on my panel uh, Robert J. Lifton and E.L. Doctorow. I mean, they were amazing. And the Soviet panel was equally distinguished. And you really have a sense of the, um, uh, the deep underlying intellectual concerns about um, nuclear weapons both in the united states and the soviet union from those guys yeah i mean it sounded so interesting um and unfortunately we are out of time once again this has been dr martin j sherwin he's a professor of history at george mason university and he's a pulitzer prize winning author check out his most recent book gambling with armageddon nuclear roulette from hiroshima to the cuban missile crisis marty thank you so much for taking the time we really appreciate it you're welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. Really, really appreciate it.